Did you miss me? <laughs> I missed you. It's been three weeks. Three weeks. Uh, yes, uh, I really appreciate the church and all of you giving me this time off. Uh, the last three weeks I've been out of the pulpit. Really appreciate Brianna and, and Abraham. Weren't they outstanding? We don't miss a beat. We don't miss a beat around here. It's, uh, like some of you are probably disappointed I'm back. It's like, you want to bring Brianna back. Uh, but uh, I appreciate the church giving me this three weeks to finish this book I've been working on for eight and a half years. It's supposed to be a summer project. Kind of, it grew. I got inspired. Um, and um, it, it really feels weighty on me. I mean, this, the, I'm doing this. It's now a two-volume work, about five, 600 pages each volume. So it's kind of, I'm sure I'll, you're all going to be reading it. I'm sure, yes. I'll try to do a popular version of it uh, when it's done. But uh, it just has been grabbing me. This uh, basic thesis is just looking at uh, interpreting the Old Testament violent portraits of God through the lens of the cross in order to discern if all scriptures are supposed to point to Jesus, right? So how do those portraits point to Jesus? So that's what I've been working on. It's been growing and expanding, and uh, it's just been, it's, I love it. I've been putting in uh, 12, 15 hours sometimes a day uh, just working on the stuff. Shelly says, that would, that would be my definition of hell. Uh, it's my definition of heaven. I love it. I just love it. I can just type away. But uh, So I, I didn't quite get it done. <laughs> Give me another three weeks, all right? Uh, see, it's, it's all written. I just got to kind of, I got to edit it and go through it. And when you do something over an eight-year period of time, you come upon stuff you wrote seven years ago, and it's trash. You know, like you, so you got to rewrite it all. And so it's, but I got, uh, I've got uh, 17 out of the 24 chapters done. So give me another month or two and, and uh, or five years, and it, it'll get done. It'll get done. All right, so we're on this series on women on the outside. Love it. Um, to be a woman in the ancient world was already to be on the outside. It was a man's world. It has been pretty much that way throughout history. But these are women who are particularly uh, outside. And it's so important that we uh, assume that position as we read the Bible. Try to enter into the mind of the outsider, because I don't know if you notice this or not, but God's got a special heart for the outsiders, the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed, the people who aren't winning in the world system. And those are the people who tend to get God the best. People who are on the inside and comfortable and are winning at the world's game tend to not be as needy of God uh, and tend to not really get God. And so we always have to assume the position of the outsider, the alien, the foreigner, the, you know, the person who's not winning. And so these are women who are on the outside of the winning side of society, and we're looking at, at how they view Jesus. And their perspective, I think, unveils some very beautiful things, as you've already been seeing. The lady I'm going to speak about here today is one of my favorites. I never, I always forget to clean my glasses before I get up here. When I get up here, I, get, I see all the smudges. You see those smudges? And so then I spend half the sermon cleaning my glasses. That's really bad etiquette. If you take any class in seminary on speaking, they'll say, number one rule, don't clean your glasses on stage. Like I obey those rules all the time. Rule number two, wear shoes. Rule number three, think about what you're going to say before you get on stage. Okay, so it's... All right, so this is, this is a, a, a passage of Scripture that has just hit me hard uh, at a number of points in my life. I, it just has ministered to me, and I'll share more about that a little bit. It's found in Luke chapter 7. It's about a lady who crashes a party, not just a lady, but a lady of the night, a prostitute who crashes not just a party, but a Pharisee's party. Uh, so we're calling this message Party Crasher. And uh, we're all called to be party crashers in different ways, as you'll see here in a little bit. So it starts in verse 36. 
When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. We'll pause here. When we think of Pharisees, we usually think of a negative person, a negative thing. It's kind of a pejorative term because we think about the Pharisees through the lens of the Gospels where they play a negative role. But if you were a first century Jewish person, Pharisee was, you look up to the Pharisees. These were the heroes. These were the guardians of truth and righteousness. Um, and so to have a dinner party of Pharisees is a big deal. These are the muckety-mucks of the religious world. These are the high and mighties who are getting together to talk. And they invite Jesus, Simon invited Jesus, to be part of this conversation um, because these were their gatekeepers, right? And um, uh, there's rumors that this guy might be the Messiah, or at least a, whole, a, a prophet. And so they got to get the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And already in the book, in the Gospels, we're seeing he, he tends to get the thumbs down because he doesn't conform to their expectations. But this is going to be an interrogation. Of Jesus, so they invite Jesus to this this party. One of the things you got to know is that uh, the translation here says that he reclined at the table. At the table actually isn't in the Greek; it just says he reclined. And uh, why that's significant is this, and we'll see it plays an important role here in a moment. But the way that they would customarily have dinners in those days is they didn't sit down on chairs with a t- at a table like we do. They would usually lay on a carpet on the ground or rug on the ground and have a meal in front of them, and lean on one elbow and eat with the other. Not eat with the other elbow, eat with the other hand. That was freed up. So you're leaning and eating, leaning and eating. Or sometimes in wealthier households, they would actually have couches for this, and the couches would be around a table, and uh, they'd be eating. That's probably what's happening here. So they're, so they're laying down so their feet are out, outward. They're not under a table. So then it says, a woman in the town who lived a sinful life, and most scholars agree that that phrase, lived a sinful life, is a delicate way of referring to a prostitute. She learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. That's in the present tense. So she, she's got, she hears about Jesus being in town as they're doing it. So he's, he's there eating, and um, um, she doesn't have a plan. She's just going to this house. And as she stood behind him, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with tears. See, that's why you need to know that he was reclining. She was standing behind him. She didn't have to go under a table to wash his, or to cry in his feet. She was just standing behind him, and her tears fell, and, and uh, that's how his feet got wet. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. Uh, this lady, one confirmation that she is most likely a prostitute is that she has this alabaster jar of perfume. Uh, Probably, if she was a peasant prostitute, which is in all likelihood she was, this is probably the most expensive thing she owned. And um, it kind of confirms that she was a prostitute because this is one of the ways that you would advertise your prostitute is by being real perfumed up. Um, and so they would carry it with them. And when a client was coming around, they'd put some on. I'm told that if you went back in ancient times, if, there was, if time travel was possible, which it isn't, by the way, and 12 Monkeys is a stupid television show, but if, if, uh, if it was possible, if you could go back in time, um, even a couple hundred years, let alone 2,000 years ago, the first thing you'd notice, I've read this, the first thing you'd notice, would notice would be the odor. Because we are like so hygienic now. Some more than others, for sure, but we are generally pretty hygienic. And... Uh, See, this is a time before there, you know, anyone had invented showers or running water in the houses. To, uh, taking a bath was a luxury, um, and um, no, one had, no one had invented deodorant yet, uh, or body spray, or toothpaste, or toothbrushes. The concept of brushing your teeth, 
The wealthy people used to have these little picks that they would use, but peasants didn't. Uh, it's, that was a rare thing. How they had conversations back then, I don't know, but they managed it somehow. How they reproduced is even a greater mystery. But uh, no, no toilet paper yet, you know, no, no bidets. It's just, it was, uh, it was, they were ripe. So to be able to smell good was a real plus. That was a turn on. Man, you smell not as gangrenish as the other person. You, <laughs> selling point. So they'd be perfumed up. Really selling point. And so then she takes this, um, she hears about this, this party going on, and she crashes it. She wasn't invited. She just crashes the party. Uh, women weren't invited to these things anyways, let alone prostitutes. She just invites herself, goes in there. No decent man would be seen with her in public. And um, if you're going to have any contact with her, it's going to be a clandestine meeting in the middle of the night, and you sneak out the back door. So here she is in the middle of this party. So just imagine the scene now. She crashes this party, prostitute, all among these powerful holy men. She's behind Jesus, standing at his feet, and she's sobbing. Out of gratitude and love, she's just sobbing. And her tears are falling on his feet. Now, back then, they wore sandals or just walked barefoot. And um, they didn't have any paved roads, so they walk on dirt. Your feet get really, really dirty. Usually, a guest, a host would have a basin of water that when you came in, you'd wash your feet and, 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 and have a towel there to dry them off. But for some reason, Simon didn't have that. So Jesus has very, very dirty feet, and so her tears are falling on very, very dirty feet. What happens to the dirt when it gets wet? It turns to mud. And so now his feet are getting muddy. Imagine that. And so she kneels down. I just love this story. And... Um, begins to wipe up the mud with her hair. A woman's hair in first century Jewish culture was her glory. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 11. A woman's hair is her glory. It's your honor. They would wear it very long. Some, some uh, a Jewish women wouldn't cut their hair at all. It would be very long. And, um, uh, and she takes his hair, her glory, and begins to wash his feet, trying to clean them up. And then she begins to kiss his feet. And then she anoints his feet with that jar of perfume. I'm sure she didn't have a clue what she was going to do with that perfume when she went to the party. I suspect she just got word that Jesus is coming to town, and she just looks around. She looks around at the most expensive thing she's got, the most precious thing she's got, and she grabs it. There's no plan here. It's just going to unfold as it unfolds. But it ends up that this tool of her trade, the vehicle of sin, now becomes the vehicle of worship. That's what God does, isn't it? Isn't it? It's beautiful. He takes something that used to be used for sin, and now it's going to be used as an act of worship as she anoints his feet. Well, Simon sees this, and he's not pleased. And so the story goes on. He says, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. He's scandalized. And we, we can't blame him. I mean, this would be a scandal. Think about this. In, in first century Jewish culture, a woman isn't supposed to ever touch a man who's not her husband. A woman's not supposed to make eye contact with a man who's not her husband. A, a, a woman's not supposed to speak to a man who's not, a, not her husband unless she's spoken to first. Those are the rules. No touch. And so here this lady crashes this party, and not only is she touching Jesus, she's caressing his feet. It's a scandal. Kissing his feet with her hair. I mean, it almost looks sensuous. It's, these high and mighty religious folks are, are, are very offended by this. It's a scandal. And, and I, I don't think we can really judge him. I mean, think about it. it, it think if, if I was, imagine if I was invited to a high and mighty religious party. I don't get much, many of those invitations, but suppose I did. 
I might one day. I might. It could happen. <laughs> and so I'm sitting down with Joel Osteen and Rick Warren and Bill Hybels and the likes of those, okay? We're going to have a theological discussion. And as we're talking about the atonement and eschatology, eschatology and ecclesiology and blah, 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 theology, where as we're do- talking about all this stuff, all of a sudden a prostitute, known prostitute, known prostitute, comes into the room. And she's so happy to see me. She starts crying. She's just weeping for tears. She's just so happy. And she comes over, and since so I'm sitting at the table, she can't really, you know, get my feet wet, but suppose she, she gets my neck wet, and she's crying. So she starts to mop up my neck with her, her, her wonderful hair and starts kissing my neck with her wonderful hair. No one prostitute. I'm on high and mighty. Very public thing. Suppose the cameras are rolling. A few eyebrows would be raised. They would wonder, well, Greg, how do you know this lady? That's what they would be wondering about Jesus. Jesus, how do you know this woman? She clearly knows you and loves you. How do you know this woman? Uh, you know, we don't talk to women in public, so it had to be in private. You want to tell us about your whereabouts the last couple of days? You're supposed to be a prophet, and here you are. So it's, I, I, people would start doing damage control. I mean, these folks would be thinking, you know, this doesn't look good on us. This, is, this doesn't look good at all. It looks like we're condoning this. What if word gets out that we Pharisees had invited a prostitute to have dinner with us? Uh, this is not good. They start doing PR damage control stuff. That's what would happen if, if I had a prostitute kissing my neck and, and mopping it up with her hair and putting perfume on me. Uh, people, I guarantee you some folks on the table would be saying, okay, damage control, we've got to distance ourselves from this. We have to put out a disclaimer really quick. This is on Greg. It's not on us. Uh, we had nothing to do with this. A timeout, you know, whatever. Shelly would probably have a few problems with it, I'm thinking, you know. She'd, What's going on here? And I'd say, honey, I'm just trying to be like Jesus. She'd say, good, so you don't mind if I crucify you. <laughs> 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 Bam! <laughs> that, that wasn't planned. So, um, yeah, it's... <laughs> no, but see, it's scandalous. And so we can understand why these people would be real scandalized by this. They want to... They lived on the reputation. Reputation was everything for them. You lose that, you lost everything. So it's a scandal. So then, uh, Simon here is saying if he, if he was a true prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. Not that any woman should be touching him, but this is a prostitute. So then Jesus answered him, which is interesting because Simon didn't ask a question. Uh, Jesus sort of just intuited what, his, uh, what was going on in his head. And he says, Simon, I've got something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had any money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus said, duh. Okay, you judge rightly. And then, what happens? Next screen. So he, he turned to the woman. Now, no, no, no. He, he, he's turning to the woman. He's looking at the woman now. Not supposed to be looking at women, but he looks at the woman as he's talking to Simon. And he says, Simon, do you see this woman? And I I think he's thinking, because I don't think you do. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss. That was just a customary way of greeting people back then. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head. That was a customary way of just kind of freshening up your, your, your guests. But she has poured perfume on my feet. So I'm telling you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. You can tell she's been forgiven a lot. Look at how she's loved. Look at the passion there. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. 
You, for example, Simon. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. They are forgiven. Never forget, your, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests, one more thing to be scandalized by, another controversy. Who is this that even forgives sins? And Jesus just ignores him. Just ignores him. He says, woman, and this is a term of endearment here. Woman, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you whole. Beautiful story. Beautiful story. Yeah. That's the gospel there, folks. A couple of things I want us to get from this, 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 this passage. First thing is this. Um, notice the different ways that Pharisees and Jesus view this woman. There's between Simon on the one hand and Jesus on the other. Simon looks at her through a grid of judgment. Looks at her through his ethical categories. Looks at her through his righteousness. Looks at her through his self-appointed gatekeeping. Thumbs up or thumbs down. He's assessing her. He's evaluating her. So what he sees is a category. What he sees is a problem. This is the problem with society. This is the homewrecker. This is the band destroyer. This is the whore. He's got a category for her. So Jesus says, do you see this woman or do you see a category? Simon sees categories. That's what religion does to people. It blinds you to people and causes you just to see your evaluations. Jesus, however, looks at her through eyes of love, and what he sees is a person of unsurpassable worth. He sees a human being. He sees a woman, a dear woman. Uh, he sees a child of God. He sees somebody who he is going to give his life for here in a very short while. Do you see this woman? Do you see what I see? And Simon doesn't. See, this is why the Gospels tell us that on several occasions, the prostitutes wanted to hang out with Jesus. They went to parties with Jesus. Messiahs weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> Prophets weren't supposed to do that, but Jesus did. And it gave him a bad reputation, but he didn't care. He didn't have a PR department that he worried about. They wanted to hang out with him. Now, they would know that he, as a holy man, he wouldn't condone their behavior. He wouldn't condone this lifestyle. They knew that. Everyone knows that. And yet they wanted to hang out with him. How does that work? See, I think this passage gives us a clue to that because what they got around Jesus was not what they got around the Pharisees. They stared a million miles away from the Pharisees. They didn't want anything to do with those folks because they just judged them. They just saw categories. But Jesus saw people, and people want to be seen. When he looked at them, he didn't look at them the way other men look at them, these prostitutes. Other men see objects. Either something they disdain or something that is used for sexual gratification, but they didn't see human beings. But Jesus, in the look of his eyes, he saw human beings. He saw them as, as, as in the image of God. He saw something precious, something infinitely worthwhile, something we're dying for. And the way he talked, the tone of his voice, the, his, his demeanor, uh, his gestures, the way he cared for them, it just communicated to them worth and value. And they didn't get that anywhere else. These are desperate women on the bottom rung of society. The rest of society judges them, but Jesus embraces them. The rest of society disdains them, but Jesus loves them. The rest of society thinks they're worthless, but Jesus ascribes unsurpassable worth to them. And everybody's starving for worth, so they wanted to hang out with Jesus. I suspect that when they're hanging out with Jesus, they just felt valued in a way they didn't feel anywhere else. Maybe in a way that they haven't felt for years and years since they were innocent little children. Before whatever happened, happened to them, that put them in this, this, this occupation, which was an occupation of desperation. still is. Around Jesus, they, 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 felt, they felt this value, this worth. They felt like, like, like humans again, like, 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 uh, like children of God. I, I bet they felt, for a moment, a break from their lifestyle. They felt clean and a return to innocence, and like they're coming home. They felt fully alive. That's what pure love does. They felt fully alive. 
So, of course, even though they knew that Jesus wouldn't approve of this, his ethical opinions would be against this, yet Jesus had a love that was greater than his ethical opinions. Think about this. What got communicated to these folks wasn't his opinion about them. What got communicated was this love that everybody's hungry for, so they wanted to hang out with him. See, this tells us a lot about God and a lot about us. This is how God views us. See, Jesus... He's not, Jesus isn't just a great holy man or a great teacher or a great prophet. He is the embodiment of God on earth, right? He is the exact representation of God's very being. He reveals God down to his very essence. That's why he says, if you see me, you see the Father. Okay, so what he does is what the Father does. This is what God looks like, and this is how God looks at prostitutes. And folks, the good news is that we are all prostitutes. This is how God views us. There's things I'm sure he sees in you, and things he sees in me that he doesn't, ethically approve of. But what gets communicated, which outshines all that, what renders that inconsequential is his love that isn't based on that. It's, it's a, the look of love that ascribes worth, that sees value. It's, God sees you in, in, in his image as having infinite worth, worth dying for. Uh, he, he doesn't see category. He doesn't look at you with a category of are you faithful or are you an adulterer? Uh, are, are, you, are you drunk or are you sober? Are you sane or are you insane? Are you gay or are you straight? Are, are, you, are, are you a hypocrite or are, are you authentic? Are you a successor or are you a loser? Are you a yes or are you a no? Because when God looks at you, it's all yes. It's all yes. He's got a yes towards you. And the only reason he's even interested in the ethical stuff is because he knows even if we don't, that sin harms us and he doesn't want anything to harm us. But he's all pro you as he was to this prostitute woman. The love is there. Society may see you in categories of decent or undecent or uprighteous and, or, or not righteous, but God just sees you. Religion may see you as a saint or a sinner, as an insider or an outsider, but God just sees you. And people in your life, your parents, your kin, whatever, they may see you in terms of whether you're an embarrassment or whether they're proud of you or whether you're a success or a loser or whatever, but God just sees you. And when he looks at you, he sees a person of infinite worth worth dying for. Amen. The religious Pharisees may be ashamed to hang out with you in public like they were this prostitute lady. The upright folks maybe just don't want anything to do with you, but God is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to call you his child. He's not ashamed to call you his friend. He's not ashamed to call you his bride if you'll accept his wedding invitation. He's not ashamed of you. He's on your side. He delights in you. He loves you as you are. He doesn't approve of everything you do, for sure. He doesn't. He doesn't approve of everything I do. But, but uh, the love, that doesn't affect the love. What gets communicated, what we've got to see communicated, what we've got to sense is the reality of that love. And see, I think most people see God the opposite way. Instead of a love that outshines the ethics, most people, I think, think God is primarily concerned with ethics. I tried to do that gig for a couple of years. It didn't work very well. Yeah, if, you do the good, if you do the good behavior, then, 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 God, then you're in. If you don't do the good behavior, then you're out. So what God's really interested in is behavior. God, the supreme behavioralist. Most people, I think, think that God looks at the world primarily through the eyes of his ethical opinions, his judgments. He's the great, critical, pharisaical eye in the sky looking at you. He can see every move. He's assessing, evaluating. All right? The cosmic Santa Claus. Are you a good boy or a bad boy? A good girl or a bad girl? He's always sizing up. And the main thing he sees is judgments. So the main thing we think about when we think about God is judgments. The thing is, it's just like the prostitutes wanted to steer clear of the Pharisees because of those judgments. Well, a pharisaical God, people want to steer clear of that. If they know they're a sinner, only the people who think they're not a sinner are okay with that. Uh, those who know that they're sinners, man, that's a hard gig to pull off. 
pleasing the pharisaical God. So usually people just ignore God or don't, don't believe in God, or if they feel like they have to believe in God, the kind of relationship you have is not one of love or intimacy or passion and honesty. No, you, you keep your distance in your heart. Even if you give credibility with your mind, your heart's going to be checked out because it's just living in front of the pharisaical critical eye in the sky is a very, very difficult thing to do. What a different picture that Jesus gives us. If we're seeing God correctly, and we understand ourselves correctly, that we are in the same position as the prostitute, then this, this, the sense we ought to have, if we're seeing God as he is revealed in Jesus, we ought to have, everyone ought to have, the same sort of sense that the prostitutes had hanging out with Jesus. Think about it. If, if, if you're envisioning God right, then when we sing about God and when we talk to God and even just think about God, we ought to feel like they felt more fully alive. It, it, as we are in all of our brokenness and all of our imperfections, we ought to feel like, like more value, like we're fully human, uh, that we've got infinite worth, even though there's all the stuff that we know that God doesn't approve of, yet his love outshines the ethical opinions. We ought to feel that way. And see, the beautiful thing is this. It's as we are able to experience that love in the midst of the brokenness that we start to get healed. And it's the only healthy way we're ever going to get healed. It's as, this is the beautiful thing about it, is as you are fully convinced and begin to experience the love of God as you are, and I don't care who you are, maybe you were out all night turning tricks, maybe you are a prostitute, it applies to you. As you are right there, if you can just experience that love of God, see it in the eyes of Jesus, hear it in the tone of voice, let him embrace you. As you let that happen as you are, it begins to change who you are, praise God. It begins to make you into a different person. It changes, transforms you from the inside out. It revolutionizes everything. Living for the pharisaical God, you know, the behavioralist God, um, well, you might tweak a couple behaviors, but it will never change who you fundamentally are. It won't change who, how you see yourself and how you view others and how you see God. But when we can get a Jesus-looking picture of God and begin to actually experience that love up front, well, it is the thing that changes everything. Uh, it begins to give you new motivations. You begin to love stuff you didn't used to love, and you begin to uh, hate stuff you didn't used to hate, and things you used to love you let go of. It just begins to change your priorities, your value systems, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money. It changes everything. We're transformed from the inside out, but only if that we experience that love up front, for free, unconditionally, as you are. So think about this. What would motivate this lady to do, to do this? To crash a party of powerful guys that she knows are going to disdain her and judge her and hate her. Maybe make a public example out of her, humiliate her, so that they can keep their PR department in order. Even possibly execute her, because that law was still on the books. You could get executed for having sex outside of marriage. What would motivate someone to do that? And then to come into this party in the lion's den and to be crying profusely at the, at the feet of Jesus and then to get down and mop his dirty, muddy feet with her glory and then kiss his feet and then anoint his feet, pouring out the one valuable thing she's got in her life, which is her employment security, this alabaster jar of perfume. What would motivate that? A rule wouldn't do it. A law wouldn't do it. A threat wouldn't do it. Promise of reward or threat of punishment wouldn't do it. Folks, it was love. This gal was, this gal was in love. She, she, she loved. She loved. I, I, we don't know how it happened. Somehow she encountered Jesus, maybe at one of those parties he used to go to. And uh, something about this guy, the look in his eyes, the tone of his voice, the respect that he showed, the value that he gave, the, the way they interacted, it was not like anything she'd ever had. This, this is the one guy maybe in her life who didn't look at her for what pleasure he could get out of her. 
she says that this is the guy who saw me, he saw into my soul, he saw value. I didn't even know I had. He, he, he found some worth that I didn't even know I had. He made me feel fully alive. He changed my life. He turned my world upside down. I'm in love with this guy. <laughs> touched me like, like no man's ever touched me before. And see, maybe she felt fresh and innocent again, like a little girl before she, whatever happened, happened to put her in this, this desperate occupation. And, and so she hears Jesus is coming into town and she's just got, she has to see him one more time. Love makes you do crazy things sometimes. Amen? It can make you do crazy things. And she is in love and she has to tell him what the difference he's made. Wants to express some gratitude. Just has to somehow see him one more time. And so she hears about it. She looks around the room and randomly grabs that jar of ointment and perfume and runs and crashes this party. Knowing full well that this could end badly. This could get her humiliated. It could get her killed. But she didn't care. She, when you're compelled by love, you crash parties you never would dream of crashing. You do things you never would otherwise dream of doing. When you've got this kind of love, she didn't care if the people are going to judge her. If people are going to look down on her. She didn't care if she's going to be executed. She's got to see Jesus one more time. And you can just see the love in her as she's crying profusely. Out of gratitude out of the forgiveness she has and the love that she's received, the new picture of God that she's received, the new sense of worth that she's received, love changes everything. And if we can just get that Jesus-looking picture of God in our brains and receive the kind of love, put ourselves in the position of the prostitute and receive that love up front as you are, before you make any promises to change and all the vows and all that, before that, because the vows and the promises come after that. They come out of love. If you, as you are right now, I don't care if you're out all night, as a prostitute, as you are right now, if you could just accept, receive, breathe in deep that love of God, it, 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 it will begin to set your, cor- your life on a different course. It begins to change everything. Uh, you'll crash parties you never otherwise would dream of crashing. I mean, you might find yourself loving people in a way that you never thought you'd love people. Uh, you might find yourself giving money away like you never thought you'd be giving money away. You might find yourself investing time in, in, in serving the poor and at the food shelf or going to the refuge or whatever it may be, pouring yourselves out. Children's ministry, you'll find that things you didn't used to care about, all of a sudden you start to care about, things you used to care about, you don't give a rip about anymore. Because you see past it. Why? Because there's a love. Paul says the love of Christ compels us. That's the fuel that the kingdom runs on. It's not, it's not threats and rules and, and, and bribes and rewards and punishment. No, uh, that doesn't fundamentally change us. But when that love gets in up front for free, unconditionally, no questions asked, it's there. When we receive that, well, you start crying at the feet of Jesus. And, 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 and you start crashing parties. And you start doing things you never thought you'd do. Praise God. And we're transformed from the inside out. So the question is, is do we dare to believe that God really is like that? Uh, that that is, if you see me, you see the Father. That is God the Father crying at the feet of Jesus. That reveals the heart of God. And that's how he views each one of us. He views us with those kind of eyes. And when that gets on the inside, it changes everything. Go to some dangerous parties. Ready to live dangerously? It's got to be fueled by that love. If it, to the degree that we're trying to get out of our stuff, because of a reward or punishment or threat or rule, it's just not... It, you may shift your stuff, but it's going to be stuff. And I'm saying stuff, but what I really mean to say is crap. Okay, it's crap. We're, we all, we're in the midst of, Until you can experience the love of God in the midst of all your crap, you're never going to get out of that crap in a healthy way. And you can quote me on that. The only way you get out of that, otherwise you're just stirring it up. You'll, you'll shift in and out. You get rid of one thing, but then you got another. It's impossible to get healthy if you're trying to please the eye in the sky. The critical Pharisee. No. If you've got a Simon-looking picture of God, well, then you're going to be in trouble. You'll just be shifting things out, shifting things in. But if you get a Jesus-looking picture of God and realize that you are the prostitute, well, that begins to change everything. Hallelujah. Okay, second thing here is this. 
Uh, Jesus isn't just our model of God, though he is that, but he's also a model of how we're to be. He's the one, he's fully God and fully human. And so we're to imitate him in all things, which means the way that he viewed this prostitute lady is the way we're supposed to view prostitute ladies, which is to say it's the way that we're to view everybody. Simon sees through a category of self-serving judgment, through his righteousness, evaluating, assessing, sizing up, he sees a category. But Jesus looks with eyes of love, and he sees a human being, a woman of unsurpassable worth, worth him dying for. So the question is, how do we see? How do we see? The thing is this. The same religious spirit that conditions us to think of God as a Pharisee also conditions us to look with the eyes of Pharisees. Same thing. That's what religion does. Simon was infected by this disease called religion. And as a result of this disease, I mean, this, this disease causes brain damage, serious brain damage, because you actually think you're better than somebody else. That's where Simon was. It's a tragic disease, really. He actually thought he was better than the prostitute. So he can look down on the prostitute, this disease that causes this brain damage. Uh, it, 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 it causes people to get all screwy where they actually think that the sins of other people are greater than their own sin. They maximize the sins of others and minimize their own sin. In fact, it not only causes brain damage, it causes eyesight damage because you actually see it. It's obvious to you. It's obvious that you're not like this prostitute. Obvious that you're better than that. Or maybe you're not perfect, but at least you're not like her. It's a disease. <laughs> and, 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 and so that's how he sees this, this lady. But see, to follow Jesus is to be healed from that disease. This disease, by the way, is a demonic game. It's just a demonic game of, of sizing up, maximizing some sins, minimizing other sins, comparing, evaluating, assessing, ranking, all of that. It's a demonic game, and unfortunately, it has infected a whole lot of modern Christianity. But see, to follow Jesus is to blow that game up. See, the, the, the prostitute was, the prostitute, in a sense, was fortunate because she, she was in the fortunate position of knowing that she couldn't play that game. She'd already lost. She's at the bottom, and when you're at the bottom... You can't compare and contrast in any way that's going to be positive towards you. When you're at the bottom, you can only look up. You can't look down. Uh, and, uh, and that's where she is. And, and see, this is why Jesus said at one point in Matthew 23, that the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors are going into heaven before the Pharisees, which didn't please the Pharisees, by the way. But these are the high and mighties. Everyone respects these folks. And Jesus says the prostitutes, see, they get it. You don't get it. You're, you're infected by this disease of religion. And you actually I think that you're better than others, so you, it blinds you to seeing people's worth and value. What you see are ethical categories. You don't see human beings made in the image of God, children of God whom Jesus died for. It's a disease. And so what it means then is this, that this is my third point. In fact, we can't do those first two things where we collapse that demonic game of evaluating, assessing, and see people as people of unsurpassable worth. Even though, of course, you see things you don't approve of, like God does you. You see things you don't, that don't agree with your ethical system, but the question is, is, do you have a love, like Jesus did, that renders those ethical opinions insignificant as you're looking at them? That's the question. What gets communicated when you, when you look at people? Because how, how you see people will get communicated. Do they sense, as the prostitutes did around Jesus, that they're more human, they have more value, they have more worth, they feel good about hanging out with you, do they, do they want to hang out with you, the worst of sinners, do they want to hang out with you, or do they steer clear of us like they did the Pharisees? What are we seeing is what, we, what gets communicated. So the third thing is this. And we can't do these first two things unless we do this third thing. And this is the main point of the story. Listen to this, and this is radical. Everything I've said so far has been pretty mundane, but this is radical. See, this, Jesus says, to whom the one who's been forgiven much is going to love much, and the one who thinks they've been forgiven little is going to love little. So there's kind of a mathematical formula here. 
Much forgiveness equals much love. Little forgiveness equals little love. Think about this. This is why this prostitute was in a good position, because she knew she needed maximal forgiveness, which is why she loved maximally. She loved to the max because she was forgiven to the max. Where Simon didn't think he needed to be forgiven that much, so he didn't love that much. That's why the prostitute, she's, she's, she's washing his feet with her tears, but Simon didn't give him any, wanted a common decency of, of, of washing his feet. And, and, and Simon didn't greet him, but this lady's been kissing his feet. And, and, and Simon didn't, uh, uh, you know, treat him like a good host and uh, give the ordinary customary things. But this lady's been pouring herself out on him, anointing him with perfume. Why? Because she knew she had much to be forgiven, and so the gratitude is much. But if you've got little to be forgiven, the gratitude's little. So what it means here is this. If what Jesus is teaching here is true, and it is, it means if we're going to love to the max, we've got to know that we need maximal forgiveness as much as this prostitute lady. It means if we're going to love to the max, we've got to know that we are at the bottom. And if we're ever going to stop looking down on people, it's because we put ourselves in a position where there's no place to look down. We're at the bottom. If you want to love like the, love in the max and have the kind of passion she had, and have this kind of gratitude towards God, we've got to know that we are as much in need of forgiveness as any person who has ever lived. Think about it. If what Jesus is saying here is true, that it means that to the degree that you think you deserve God's love better than anybody else who's ever existed, to that degree, you're not going to really experience God's love. Or to say it the other way, if what Jesus is teaching here is true, and it is, it means that to the degree that you think you have less to be forgiven than any other person that's ever existed, to that degree, you're not going to experience that love and forgiveness. So it means that the only way we can approach God, if we're really going to experience his love, who he really is, we've got to go to him as the prostitute, as the worst of sinners, as the lowest of the low, putting ourselves on the bottom of whatever sin scale society might, might project out there. We put ourselves at the bottom to experience maximal forgiveness. I am in need of maximal forgiveness more than any other person that ever lived. And then when I get that love in the midst of that, well, then I, in, in turn, start to love back. And that's what fuels me to change and I'll reverse priorities and all of that. Jesus said it like this. To get us out of this demonic game of sizing and evaluating. He said, when you look, why do you look for a dust particle in someone else's eye when you've got a two-by-four or a tree trunk sticking out of your own? What he's saying there is not that they objectively, in terms of society, actually had that much of a greater sin than everybody else. No, they're probably better than average in terms of society. But what he's saying is, is uh, this is the attitude you should have. Whatever you think you see in another person, uh, let that be a little dust particle. It's a little tiny dust particle. Whereas whatever's in yourself, that's a tree trunk. About a trillion times worse than that thing you think you see in somebody else. Because see, religion, that disease, causes brain damage, causes damaged eyesight. You think you see a tree trunk and yours is only a little dust particle. Of course, I got a dust particle. No one's perfect. But look at that tree trunk. So now you're seeing a category instead of a person, and uh, now you're serving a Simon God rather than a Jesus God. Uh, so he says, reverse that whole thing. Instead of maximizing others and minimizing your own, minimize others and max your own, whatever the sin may be. Or Paul put it like this. I love this. First Timothy 1. He says, here's a saying that everybody should accept. Quote, Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Everybody should be saying that. To be a Jesus follower is to say that. Whatever other sins out there, well, mine is the worst. And why is that important? Well, for one thing, it collapses the judgment thing, so you can start finally seeing human beings rather than categories. The other thing is that now you're in a position where you can experience maximal grace. 
and therefore have a maximal love for God. There's another way to do it. Put yourself in the bottom. You are the worst of sinners. You are the worst of sinners. Um, it, it means that there's the, the whole evaluating ranking game has been, it, it has been collapsed. This is what got Simon in, in trouble. He actually thought he could stand above this prostitute lady and look down. When the truth is we're all at the bottom. <laughs> there's nowhere where to look but up. <laughs> we're, we're nowhere to look but up. And that's the good place to be. To come to God is to come as this, as, as this prostitute. Society may say, you're better than average. You're decent. You're righteous. You're, you know, whatever. At least you're not a criminal. Religion may say, you're a Satan, not a sinner. But look at the, the kingdom. We all say that we are sinners in the process of being redeemed. And we need maximal forgiveness, which is why we receive maximal grace, which is why we can we're maximally loved, which is why we can love back maximally, which is why our lives can be maximally transformed. Hallelujah. That's how it works in the kingdom. You got to put yourself in the position of the prostitute. And that's not a groveling. I hate this when people are like, oh, I'm just, I'm maggot's breath. I'm snail scum. I'm dog poop. No, no, it's not about beating yourself up because the eyes of Jesus are looking at you and you've got unsurpassable worth despite all of that. Okay, so it's not about being yourself. It's just about what, living life knowing that, that, that you deserve God no more than anybody who's ever existed. You also deserve no less than anyone else who's ever existed. And uh, you need forgiveness as much as anyone else who's ever existed. Anyone else! Okay, that, that covers some pretty nasty people, but we have to put ourselves at the bottom. If you think you're up even a quarter of an inch to that degree, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get the love. You're not going to be experienced the transformation. And you're not going to see people. You'll see categories. Several months ago, I had a, a young lady come up after service. Um, and, and she said to introduce herself or anything. She just blurted out. She wanted to know something. She goes, okay, pastor, I'm gay. And I want to know, do you think I'm a sinner? Hi, my name's Greg. <laughs> I, I, I'm straight. Um, I, 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 do, you, do you think I'm a sinner? And my response to her was, I'm pretty sure you are. But I'm worse. I, I, I'm, I'm worse than one. How could I have any other response given this, you see? Given this. And she just kind of wanted to know, you know where, she, where she ranks on the scales. And what I want to communicate to her is there are no scales. There's no ranking. It, 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 we're, all the same, we're all the same cesspool. But as you get the love of God up front, I told her this, just let God love you, start loving them back and see where it takes you. Because <laughs> it will take you some parties you never dream you'd go to. <laughs> you start crashing things, you start doing some things, it just changes from, from the inside out. Uh, one, one other thing I want to say about this is, is this, is that this is something we can never outgrow. I've met people who think you need grace early on, but as you mature and get holy, you, you need it less. So you need to be forgiven less. If what Jesus is teaching is true, to think you need to be forgiven less would mean that you love God less. Something's wrong with that picture. See, it, 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 uh, there is supposed to be progress in our life. Hopefully we're developing a, an ever-increasingly greater capacity to love people and to forgive and to let go of things and, and, and to serve people. And, and we're conformed to the image of Christ. We should always be growing in that. Always. But we never outgrow, should never outgrow the mindset that we are the prostitute and that we need maximal forgiveness. In fact, I, I found, and I think this is just a, a, a truth that's been confirmed throughout church history, the closer you get to God, maybe objectively, there are less sin. There is less sin to be forgiven. But the closer you get to God, the, the more acutely aware you are of the sin that remains. You, you're more aware of it. it, it it's, it's a person who's, who, who thinks that they need less to be forgiven is still in a fairly immature state. But the closer you get, the more acutely you are aware that you're broken still. And that, so the more amazed you are at the God who loves you anyways. Uh, about a year ago, I was, one random night, this God's strange. He's a very strange God, but 
for no reason I could think of, and still cleaning my glasses like you're not supposed to. Um, middle of the night, I could sleep, so I'm praying and listening to some music. And all of a sudden, I became so aware of my brokenness. I just, it, my eyes were opened. I, I, I knew that intellectually, but it's one thing to know something intellectually, another thing to experience it. And I just experienced it. I just, I, I began to, like this woman, to weep. If Jesus was physically in that room, I would have been sobbing all over his, 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 his feet and I couldn't wash it with my hair, I suppose, but, <laughs> but I would have washed it with something. I, I just was overwhelmed by the God who had loved me and all my brokenness still, all my feelings still, all my shortcomings still. He loves me and he uses me. It's like, God, how, how could that be? But see, that's, that's when you begin to comprehend what you can't comprehend, the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of the love of Jesus Christ that passes all understanding. It's unfathomable. But you only begin to see that when you realize that you don't deserve it. Even people like us, prostitutes, us prostitutes, he loves as we are, he uses as we are. And it's in the process of doing that that he changes who we are. Hallelujah. This lady just unveils so much truth that we need to live in. So folks, it comes down to this, I end with this. Do we dare believe that God is this beautiful? Are we willing to put ourselves in the lowest rung? Because if you've been feeding off of the sin scales for a while, it feels good. It's tasty. You feel righteous. And it's hard to let go. Are you willing to let that go? Are you willing to die to that? And then catch yourself as you're looking at people. Whenever you're seeing categories instead of people, you set that aside. And just start affirming their worth. Is your picture of God more like a Simon or is it more like a Jesus? It comes down to that. And I, I, I encourage this this week. Would you do this two or three times? Read this story again. And just envision yourself as the prostitute. It's, it, it's, it, you are her. And it starts from... Start from the moment you first hear about Jesus coming. And just read the story through and put yourself in that position. Because it unlocks the truth about us. We are in the position of the prostitute, which is simply to say the lowest possible scum of the earth in the first century. We're there. And that's where we ought to be. Because that's where the blessing happens. That's where the revelation of God's love happens. That's where you begin to love much. Because you realize you've been forgiven much. And that's where then, looking at people from that perspective, you never look down because there's no down. You are at the bottom. You can only look up. And now you start communicating respect and worth and dignity and value. Uh, and now the kingdom spreads. Amen? Amen? All right. We just stay in. I'll just close with this. And as I close, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And if you have any need whatsoever that could use uh, prayer, and if you have a need, it probably could use prayer, come up here and pray with the, these folks. They'd, they'd just love to serve you in that way. As we leave here, this is a, a strange benediction, I suppose, but I pray we leave here as prostitutes. <laughs> go, go with the mindset of a prostitute who's been forgiven much and therefore loves much. Love God much, love yourself much, love people much, because you've been forgiven much in Jesus' name. Amen? God bless you guys. Love you.